Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing from uh, last week as we kind of move our way through 1 Peter and studying the book section by section, paragraph by paragraph. And as you might remember, Peter is an apostle who is an apostle to the Jews. But in this particular case, in First Peter, he's writing to the churches that are mainly Gentile. Uh, and uh, they are listed there in verse uh, 2 of uh, chapter 1. And Peter... Uh, uh, Peter being a, a, an apostle to the Jews and addressing himself to the Gentiles, one of the uh, unique flavors of the book of First Peter is that we see the connection between the history of the Old Testament with the unfolding of the New Testament church and how it, it becomes real and a part of our story. It's interesting that um, Peter uses these images and applies them directly to us as believers. And what I want us to see, you remember uh, we started in the first section of Peter talking about the salvation that we receive, the living hope, the new birth, and the experience of, of transformation being brought into the gospel through Christ. And then he transitioned to our family life together. How we are to love one another. How the word of God changes us like seed that comes into our hearts and lives and, and comes alive and transforms us. And how we are to get rid of those things that work against a loving family relationship. And how we are supposed to sincerely seek after the word of God as a newborn babe seeks after spiritual, uh, uh, physical milk as nourishment. We are to seek after the word for spiritual nourishment. And Peter is giving us these building blocks about our salvation and about our family together, our connection together, and how we do life together so that we can encounter and stand up and be a witness and a testimony to the world around us. Peter is writing to these Gentile Christians who are struggling. They're experiencing various trials and and struggles in their faith. And he is seeking to build them up and give them confidence and, and point them in the direction of strength and encouragement to face the challenges of the culture around us. And so the book of Peter is super encouraging for us. Because it's those building blocks, the recognition of our salvation and what it means to us, and what God, Christ, has done for us, and our connection with one another, that will strengthen us as we try to stand before the world and be a demonstration of the good news of the gospel and face the challenges of the culture around us. That's the setting in which Peter is writing, and it is very much a setting that is important for us in our day. And so we are looking at the family relationship, and in the section that we are entering into in chapter 2, verse 4 through 10, 
we're getting a, a view, a description from Peter of the roots of our family. And so it is uh, an encouraging portion of Scripture. It's one that I'm a little uh, nervous to preach on, which is because this is one of the high points of Scripture for me. I love this passage. I've thought about this passage many times. Uh, it, it has energized my heart in so many ways throughout the years of following Christ that I have many more thoughts than I can share. So I'm uh, trying to keep it on target here. And so as we prepare to look at this passage, I want us to first think about the associations that we have in our lives. We are connected with other people and connected with other groups of people. And uh, when I talk about associations, you know, for me, I'm, I'm kind of simple-minded and shallow. And I, I think of, hey, I'm connected with a bunch of Wisconsinites who are Packer fans. And I'm sure there's a bunch of Packer fans here too, you know. Uh, so we have associations. And I, uh, I love the Packers so much that uh, I, we bought a, a, a share. And so we're actually Packer owners. You should know that. That's important. Uh, but it's an association. It's not actually a very deep association. I pay attention to the Packers. I'm sure you pay attention to the Packers too. Uh, but, you know, it's not, it's not super deep. But, uh, you know, sports, that kind of association is pretty prominent and prevalent in our society. And I confess that uh, as much as I love hockey, and actually I don't like hockey and I haven't quite figured out all of the details of when it's icing and what that means. But I watched the last game of the Blues. And I was cheering for them as they won the Stanley Cup. And, you know, I was associated with everybody in Missouri. It was a great win, right? Uh, those kinds of associations certainly do happen in our lives. Sometimes they're deeper than others. I know and see, have seen fanatic Packer fans that I would not want to associate with. Um, but there, you know, but there are other just general fans that are good and, and, and that kind of association only goes so far, but we have all kinds of associations in our, in our lives, like living in Columbia where we have the University of Missouri. If you're an employee or you work for the University of Missouri, you know, one of the, the biggest employer in the town. It carries with it some connection, some identification, some significance. Now, uh, Veterans United is is growing pretty big, so hey, you know, people like that. I remember we went to the restaurant uh, maybe a week or so ago, and Veterans United gave everybody red shirts that said something about how great they were. I don't remember what it said. <laughs> that we do good stuff, or I don't know. But I remember stopping them and saying, hey, what's the shirt? What's that about? Oh, yeah, all the Veterans United people got shirts, and we started seeing them everywhere. You know, there's that association. It's important. It, it, it says that we're a part of something bigger. We're connected with a group, an organization, and we're proud of it, and it, it, it shapes who we are and what we do. Uh, there's lots of those kinds of associations. I mean, we could think of our ethnic backgrounds. Maybe like my family, I, I don't know exactly on my dad's side what I am, but I know on my mother's side we're German. So, uh, you know, German, German-American, got some connection. Maybe we're African-American. 
Maybe we're Asians. Maybe, you know, we have those associations, those backgrounds, those connections that kind of tell us something about who we are and what we're connected to. I mean, uh, as we think about employment, we can think about other situations of people being associated with those who are stay-at-home moms, those people who are students. We uh, talked about praying for Anthem Church. It's trying to be a campus, uh, connected to the campus in a strong way. All of those associations define who we are. When I was growing up, there, there is this one association that I, I think is pretty important, pretty prominent. And, and that is the association that we get as Bible believers about the Jews. I remember I grew up in Baptist church. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. And I always heard about the Jewish people. And then I remember in fifth grade, I got to sit next to a friend of mine who was Jewish. He was the first Jewish person I'd met. And I was like, wow, that's really something. I mean, I don't know exactly what I was thinking was going to happen, but uh, he was a Jewish person. And he was chosen. They're, they're, they were chosen by God. I, I would watch them to see, you know, what kind of spectacular things would happen or something like that. Or, there must be something that stands out. I don't know. And, and, but then I kind of came to realize, you know, he was just an, a normal human being. We talked about religion and stuff and beliefs, but he was just a normal human being. I didn't realize, I didn't remember reading like in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where it talks about God chose the Jewish people, not because they were great and spectacular, super duper or large, but because they were small. But he chose them mainly because he chose them because he worked in the lives of the patriarchs he made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and those promises marked out the Jewish people for them for God and so that was a special association I wasn't Jewish but he was Jewish that was a special association and that's, that's a pretty profound association. I think it still shapes the identity of the Jewish people, even in, the, in, the, in Israel, in the land, land of the, uh, Philistine, the, the uh, Palestine, even today. You know, they have an identity and understanding, a belief that God has worked in their lives. And it is an important one. And when it comes to these associations, certainly we have to recognize some are much more powerful than others. Some should shape who we are in how we behave and what we believe and what we do. And what is so fascinating about the book of First Peter is that Peter, a Jewish follower of Jesus, an apostle of the church, and known to be an apostle to the Jews, was in this book willing and able to communicate some of the grand connections between the Jewish people in the Old Testament to the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And not to see a big distinction, but to see a fulfillment and a continuation and that when we talk about our family relationships as believers together, we're not just talking about a New Testament experience. We're talking about the unfolding of God's plan of salvation down from the very beginning through time 
to the culmination when Jesus returns again and God's desire to bring together for himself a people of God whom we are to be representatives. Whom we are to live in the privileges and the experiences of being those people because we have trusted in the one God has sent. His son To be the Lord and Savior and Redeemer of a people for himself. And so when you start to think about, okay, I know that we're supposed to love one another. I know that we're supposed to, you know, study the word of God together. I know that we should serve one another. We think about all these shoulds and what we should be like and what what our responsibilities are. Well, this passage tells us about the privilege we have. God's dream for us as his people as represented in the fellowship of the church. And then the question becomes are we living in the place of bringing about and satisfying by our lives God's dream and desire for us. That makes this passage fairly weighty. Because it's connected to God's goal, God's desire, God's longing, and God's determination and intention from the beginning. When he had determined to send his son to bring us into his family. Therefore, we see that this association, this connection, these family roots run deeper than anything else we could ever experience. And they will last longer than any other family connection we will ever have. So that means so much, this passage, to me. So, because it communicates all of that. So let's read this passage. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 10. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, did I lose something? For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Starting to scratch the surface, there are three realities I want to highlight. But 
there's so much more here than I can highlight in this message. But to start with three, and I encourage you to continue to read and study and think about the rest of this passage. First, we are being built into a spiritual house on the true cornerstone. Verse four, as you come to him, as you come to him, this is a present participle that is used in a continuous sense. As you come to him, you are being built up into a spiritual house. As you come to him speaks of our initial trust and faith in Jesus. As we recognize that he is the cornerstone. He is the living stone. He is the one that has brought salvation. We trust in him. But then as we continue to come to him. It's part of our family activity. To gather together. To constantly come together. To worship. To praise. To love one another. To serve one another. To be together. And to surround ourselves around this holy word. This living stone. And I see this as being built up as a spiritual house. Built on the foundation of the cornerstone. Who is Jesus? And that we come together as this house is being built. And we constantly orientate ourselves towards that one Who's the cornerstone? Who's the foundation upon which this spiritual house is being built? And so our longing and our desire always should be to know Christ, to love Christ, to serve Christ, to be like Christ. Because the spiritual house that God is building is happening here in our lives and in our relationships with one another. It is the stone metaphor A daring one, because usually stones aren't alive. But but Peter's so convinced of the, the power and the weightiness and the strength. God is our rock, he is our salvation. But Christ is our rock and he's our salvation. But he is a living stone. He is not stagnant. He is not uh, just sitting there. He is active and involved in our lives. And as a living stone, we as living stones as well are being molded together, pushed together, built together to build a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. Now this word, priesthood, holy priesthood, is also picked up in verse 9, a royal priesthood. There, there is a tremendous picture of the call of God on our lives in the building of this spiritual house. And the priesthood certainly reflects back to the Old Testament when in, the, in amongst the, the people of God, there was the Levites and the descendants of Aaron who served as priests, as those who would stand between God and the people, who would offer atonement and blood sacrifice for the sins of the people, who would bring the people into a relationship with God. And in a very similar way, we as a a spiritual house are to operate 
as priests, priests of God and priests for God in the world around us, to be those intermediaries who communicate and interpret the the word and will of God and to demonstrate by our lives the importance of who God is and how he wants to work in our lives and give direction to our lives. We, as the spiritual house, are to be a picture of that. We are called to be involved in offering spiritual sacrifices. And when we think about spiritual sacrifices, we must realize that we're priests of God in the world. And as priests, we don't offer animal sacrifices like in the Old Testament. But spiritual sacrifices. How do we interpret that? How do we understand spiritual sacrifices? The New Testament identifies these offerings, these sacrifices, as offering our bodies to God as our spiritual sacrifice. Romans 12.1, which you might be familiar with. The giving of gifts to enable the spread of the gospel in Philippians 4.18. The singing of praises are spiritual sacrifices in Hebrews 13.15. And the doing of good and sharing our possessions with one another in Hebrews 13:16 these along with numerous other examples communicate to us that everything we do as a person who is following Christ and obeying Christ that everything we do has the mark of a spiritual sacrifice to it as we yield ourselves as sacrifices to God living sacrifices like living stones being built in a spiritual house therefore because of this priestly role We hear and know of God in an intimate way. In an intimate way because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we're called to demonstrate the wonder and the truth of our salvation to the world by being priests of God. The key issue for all of us as believers is how are we living out being Living stones orientated towards the cornerstone who is the living stone. Are we growing? Are we developing? Are we persistently giving ourselves over to this mighty precious work of God of building a spiritual house? Or have we become preoccupied and lackadaisical about The work of God in the midst of the people of God. Peter's encouraging these young churches to walk in their relationship with God. To know the truth and the power of the love of God amongst one another. And to share in the power, the seed of the word of God. So that they might be faithful and enlivened. So that they could stand as witnesses and testimonies to the world. We too must see that. And we too must see that God is up to something in the life of the church. And building a spiritual house. Of course, Peter substantiates the place of Jesus as the living stone with several Old Testament quotes. And I wish I had time to think about these more, but I would encourage you to read them and think about what Peter's telling us about the reality of Christ. 
that we must see Christ as that living stone and that he is precious to God and all those who trust in him will not be put to shame. But he has been rejected. And this this stone, Jesus, will cause people to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. We must be careful with our response to Jesus. We must know that he is the one and only person, living stone that God has placed in its place at the cornerstone for life and for salvation. And we must trust him. That is the call of the New Testament. Anyone who has never trusted in Jesus, never put their full weight of hope and confidence in the work of Christ on the cross for their behalf, are in need of finding this living stone, Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior and Lord, finding them, finding Him as their hope and their life. I hope that everyone has. Everyone's trusted. The invitation is open to all. Then we look at this very end of verse 8, which is a little challenging, and I thought I would just address it fairly quickly. If I can, maybe, quickly. End of verse 8, it says, well, let me read verse 8. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. See, I said there's a lot to think about in this passage. A lot of questions, and so I'd encourage you to think about what's being said here. But one conclusion I want to leave with you is that when it comes to stumbling and destination, destined to fall, we kind of get into this area of free choice, our responsibility. Do we respond to the gospel? Or did God determine that some of us respond to the gospel and some of us don't? It can sound a little tricky. One of the things that I want to say is that we must be just like the writers of Scripture. We must be willing to confidently set next to each other these two ideas. Notice, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Peter says why they fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Therefore, we must obey the message. We must believe the message. We must trust in Christ or we are in danger. And that is a responsibility we have as people. So if you have not trusted in Christ, I'd invite you to trust in Christ and find life in him. He's the only one that can dispense real life. But then, right next to that, is laid this statement, which is also what they were destined for. The scriptures are confident in the sovereign control of God over the destiny of human life. And however that works out, it, the scriptures, the writers, will put those two statements right next to each other with no conflict and no struggle. And so I would invite us to put those two statements together with no conflict and no struggle. 
That the call of the gospel requires a response on the part of the human. But the call of the gospel requires a work of a sovereign God who accomplishes his eternal purposes at the same time. And I don't have to say one or the other. I can lay them next to each other just like they do here. And say I don't know how it works out. But I affirm both of them. Because... As we'll see in verse 9, which is what I call the, real, the, uh, the second point of the sermon, we are brought into the privileged position before God. In verse 9, we see that we are a chosen people. The reality is that God has chosen us. We are a chosen people. And just like the associations we have in all of the areas of our life that I opened with, this association, this identification of us being included in the people of God is of paramount importance. And it is a work of God on our behalf. And there needs to be a recognition that He is the one who has brought us into salvation. So Peter here develops this identity and helps us to see several things about who we are and the privilege in which we stand. First, we are a chosen people. And I would remind you to go back to uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ, to God's elect. Peter is clear That as God chose the people of Israel in the Old Testament, God chooses the people who would respond to the the word of the gospel in our day. But it doesn't cancel our responsibility to respond. And so we are to recognize the privilege in which we stand. We are a chosen people. Second, we are a royal priesthood, which is a a priesthood that we've talked about already. And a holy nation. This is a precious characterization of who we are. We must recognize who we are. We must see God's special possession. We must see ourselves as God's special possession. This all comes from, and I'm so sorry, I'm running out of time. This all comes from Exodus chapter 19. And so you should go and read Exodus chapter 19. Because there are important things. And I'm going to read just a little bit of it. But this is the chapter where the Israelites are brought out of Egypt. They're delivered by God's mighty hand after all the plagues in Egypt. Then God takes them and walks them through the Red Sea, brings them into the Sinai Desert, brings them to Mount Sinai. And God wants to make for himself a people. And it's the giving of the Ten Commandments. But the context around the giving of the Ten Commandments is so important because in verse 3 of of chapter 19... It says, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have, 
have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now that sure does sound an awful like a lot like what we're reading back here in Peter, right? Can you imagine Peter, the apostle to the Jews, writing to a Gentile church and using the very words that God was speaking to the Israelites to deliver them and make them his special nation. A holy nation, a treasured possession. That, G- that Peter would say, those very words are the very words that apply to the believers in Jesus. Those very words, those longings, those desires of God on behalf of the people, that those words, those dreams would apply to the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a privileged position. That is deep roots. Deeper roots than we'll ever experience anywhere else because God in His longing for a people for Himself is still accomplishing that because he called the people of Israel. They heard the words of God. They committed themselves to it, but they failed. And they failed and they failed. They rejected God and did their own thing until God removed them into foreign nations. But God had a plan to build a new covenant, to make a new church. And it would be built on the work of Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus Christ has come and redeemed for himself a people, that is, you and I who've trusted in Jesus, he's redeemed a people for himself by the blood of his son. And now he's calling us and initiating us and bringing us into a spiritual house that really is a royal priesthood. The place of being a holy nation. A special possession of God. The question for us is how glorious is it to be a part of the church? Do we have blinders on? We miss this point. That God's dream and desire for a people committed to himself. Walking in relationship with him. Was never fulfilled in the Old Testament. But now has come to glorious fulfillment in Jesus Is that what we recognize as the privileged position in which we stand? Do we long to honor him as the Savior, the gracious God and King? Because look at what he has done for us. Or are we involved in our own agendas, in our own plans and purposes? And we want church to do this and we want church to do that. We want to be ministered in this way and we want to have uh, fun in this way. Do we understand that God is up to building a spiritual house? And that that call is so profound that it's something that God longed for from the beginning of time and which he called the Israelites into and that we as redeemed people can be a part of that.
Peter's concern that these Gentile Christians that he's writing to forget the roots of the family they belong to. And that, that those trials of the day, the challenges that they face, overwhelm who they are, what they're called to. Would that same concern be applied to us? That the trials of the day and the concerns of our life overwhelm who we are and what we're called to? Oh, that that might not be true of us. That we might see the weightiness of the gospel and what God is up to in building in us His people, His church, restoring and making new in the world His kingdom for Christ. That this is a holy work, a profound work. God's special attention is given to it. Shouldn't our attention be given to it? Oh, that we might be faithful in the work of the church, ministry together. Let's pray. Lord, you are patient, good, kind, and gracious. Lord, there's so much in this passage that we didn't even touch. You are the God who deserves praise and worship and celebration because of your grace and the excellencies of your mercy revealed in us. Lord, I pray that you break our hearts and change us that we might see the wonder and glory of the gospel and the wonder and glory of the church as as we live as your people in the world. Give us a transcendent understanding of that association that has deeper roots than anything we will ever experience. And then, Lord, may we live accordingly. May we live for your glory. May we fulfill your longing for your people. Do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.